Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Hey, Caleb, my friend, how are you doing? Hey, I'm all right, Jason. How are you? I'm doing okay. How was your weekend? I had a really good weekend, man. It was kind of a throwback to the 90s. You know, we've talked on this podcast before about missing concerts. Well, we got to go to our first concert in quite a while this weekend, and I took my wife and the kids to see a throwback band, one of my favorites. Actually, the first CD I ever bought, it was Collective Soul. They've been one of my favorite bands for a long time and had never seen them in concert, so it was a great way to kick off the new concert season, introduce the kids to a little rock and roll, and you know, for their age... I shouldn't even say that. For anyone's age, they put on a really, really great show. Yeah, that's great. Collective Soul's one of those bands that has so many hits that you don't even really realize. You know the words to those songs. And for for folks growing up in the 90s, or you have that coming of age time in your life when when music is extremely important to you and everybody looks back on that time with with nostalgia and awe and you can't you're always trying to recapture that collective soul was releasing music around that time for us yeah it was uh the formative years it was when i decided that i wanted to start playing music so they were really influential there and i gotta say man i I really i don't understand how they weren't a bigger deal because they put out some really good stuff i think it might be because they were hard to classify you know they were in the 90s yeah you know, when you look at the 90s, there were a couple different periods. There was the grunge period. Well, they didn't fit into that. There was just the pop period. They didn't totally fit into that either. But they mixed a lot of elements of a lot of different things. They had kind of a southern rock at times and grungy and just straight up poppy. Like they were they were different. Um, I don't know why they didn't catch on as a more popular band. But when I look back and I think about bands from the 90s, they definitely do it for me. They bring back the 90s vibes, which was an easier time and a simpler time, if you will. <laughs> Brings back good memories. Yeah, we didn't have a lot to worry about in the 90s, so no. maybe that's why we like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Very carefree, yeah. What was the best song that they played live? Oh, uh, well, let's see. They played Heavy. That was the second one that they played. I don't know if that was their probably their third album, which was a, it was a pretty popular song of theirs. It just it got me going. Surprisingly, they started off the, the show with a little bit less lesser-known hit. I can't even remember what it was. Uh, but it wasn't as uh, in your face as that one. It was really good, yeah. man. And they, they got things going and they never let up. And my kids had a blast, which was great. How fun to get to take your kids to a rock and roll show. COVID's over. We're back out there yeah. rocking and rolling. And you're, uh, you're teaching those young ones. Got right. to do it the right way, the way that the 90s intended. And this is the crazy <laughs> thing. So originally, the ticket had Better Than Ezra and Tonic on there. At the last minute, those two bands were pulled. So that would have been cool to see them too. But actually, uh, instead, we got, I know they say Toledo's own, but we know um, the lead singer of Saturnine Hello. They filled in um, as one of the openers and did a great yes. job. Saturnine Hello with uh, Robbie Nine, local legend here in Defiance. Yeah. So that was really cool. Had no idea they were going to be up there. And I thought, boy, that guy looks a lot like Robbie Nine. That guy yeah. is Robbie Nine. <laughs> Saturnine, hello. He's a big reason why I started playing the guitar. He, I think they were doing like a talent show or something when he would have been probably a freshman or sophomore or junior or senior or fifth year senior in uh-huh. high school. And uh, <laughs> fifth year senior, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know how rockers are. You never yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I remember watching him and being like, dang, those guys are cool. Yeah. I want to play the guitar. And then I eventually started too, and we got to play a couple shows with them. And yeah, man, he wails. And yeah. uh, that's cool that you got to see them. What a surprise. <laughs> I like Saturnine Hello. They're a good band. They've been around for a long time. To open for a collective soul, that's got to be one of their big achievements, I think. I bet they would, uh, they'd They'd surprise you. I think they've they've gotten on quite a few tickets in Detroit and Toledo of pretty big groups. Well, no, that's not that's not a slight to Saturnine Hello. I'm, I'm saying uh, Collective Soul is a big deal. Like I, I feel like that's a... Like, wow, we opened for Collective Soul. That'd be one of those feathers I'd put in my cap. That's true. I, I mean, But I, the ones I'm thinking of are, I guess, bigger 80s hits that I'm pretty sure they've opened for, like Poison and oh, yeah? White Snake and Warrant and that's those kinds deal. of bands. I, I don't know. If I, that's what I think. But okay. I don't know. That sounds awesome, man. I'm glad you got to see some rock and roll. I bet you got your guitar out. I did. Uh, my fingers I heard you in the sore. office. I heard you in the <laughs> office playing some, uh, some Collective Soul songs. That's cool, man. It was a good time. What about you? Do you have a good weekend? Uh, no, mine was not as great. I found out that I need to have surgery to repair torn labrum in my shoulder. So for you guys listening, I complained about that a couple episodes ago. And it turns out I need surgery. So, yeah. Oh, bummer, man. I know. We're just getting older. I don't know. I, I still think it's all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is the doctor says after the surgery, I'll be able to throw a baseball and a Frisbee again with my kids. He's like, well, I don't know. Since you're not trying to play professional baseball, I think we'll be all right. And I was like, well, what if I want to do that? Yeah. I don't want to be limited. <laughs> I'm, I don't know about you. I still have four years of eligibility. I, I could go back to college and play, I think. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. You could. Yeah. I'm definitely. <laughs> we, so could we all, Caleb. That's too bad. I'm, I'm sad to hear that your uh, shoulder is still bothering you because I remember you at your physical peak, the height of your superpowers, you know, when you were an athlete for crying out loud. Now you're just crying out loud. Hey, man, I think I still am deluded enough to think my physical peak is ahead of me. I'm going to get there. Well, if you do, congratulations. I don't know. Thank you. That's Thank you. I, I'm definitely on the downtrend. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't like the aches and pains, though. They hurt. Yeah, they hurt a lot. You know, it's good for that, Jason. Cocktails. Yeah. Cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what are we drinking today? Today, Caleb, we're drinking something that's really fun to refer to. It's called a Harvey Wallbanger. That is fun. Uh, uh, now, what did you say again? A, a, a what? A Harvey Wallbanger. Okay. Uh, what <laughs> a What did you say? It's a Harvey Wallbanger. Harvey Wallbanger. Okay. I'm you heard kidding. me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what is a Harvey Wallbanger other than a cool name for a drink? Uh, well, yeah, it is <laughs> It is mostly a cool name for a drink. But it's a version of a screwdriver, Caleb. It's it's orange juice and mm. vodka, and no, it's not that old of a drink, maybe from the 50s or the 60s. It's heavily related to surfing. Mm-hmm. It's refreshing. It's got a weird liqueur that comes in a hideously tall bottle. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we're drinking today. It's yeah. the Harvey Wallbanger. I, the Harvey Wallbanger sounds like an insurance salesman to me. Why are we talking about Harvey Wallbangers today? Well, it's funny that you say that, Caleb. <laughs> Harvey Wallbanger does kind of sound like an insurance salesman name. If he were an insurance salesman, he'd probably be screwing people. <laughs> And uh, it's the screwdriver it's, reference. It's a screwdriver reference. Uh, we're talking about annuities today, Caleb. Annuities. Okay, that's uh, that's a loaded topic there. But yeah, I, I like the connection. <laughs> so <laughs> it's funny. We just talked about the '90s too. I bet a lot of our listeners were drinking screwdrivers in college in the '90s. <laughs> yeah, probably. It is. It is heavily <laughs> related to college. But I'm excited to talk about this drink. It's a fun drink. 
I think that we are hilarious in tying the screwdriver <laughs> together with annuities because anybody that's listened to us talk for any length of time, especially me in public, knows how I feel about annuities. And I'm quick to throw annuity salespeople under the bus and accuse them of screwing people. Yeah, well, before you <laughs> accuse any more, Jason, why don't we talk first about the Harvey Wallbanger and tell our listeners who are possibly listening and mixing up a drink at home with us how to make a Harvey Wallbanger at home. That is a great idea, Caleb. I think that you should introduce this drink since you mixed up our Harvey Wallbangers and you experimented with a little. So why don't you introduce the recipe? Sounds good. So it is a variation of a screwdriver, the old college classic, which is vodka and orange juice with a little bit of a twist here. And, and we took the recipe from liquor.com because this is not one of those classic David Embry recipes. It's not a uh, Savoy cocktail recipe from the <laughs> 30s. This isn't a high class cocktail this came around later, like you said. This is not a Jerry Thomas drink, okay? <laughs> so we we consulted liquor.com and it will get into like some of the marketing material. There are some different recipes, different we'll say strengths that people make this. Strengths, not strengths. <laughs> strengths. Strengths. Anyway, to get into it, uh, we start with one and a quarter ounce of vodka, a half ounce of Galliano Italian liqueur. Three ounces of freshly squeezed orange juice, and we garnish that with an orange slice and a maraschino cherry. And when we use maraschino cherries, we always go with Luxardo. Mm -hmm. You just can't find better, in my opinion. As far as making this drink, Jason, a couple of different ways that we can do it. The first time, I took all of the ingredients, I put it in a cocktail shaker, and shook it like crazy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the results were okay. It was all right. I found on another website, you can stack the ingredients, which basically you start with the orange juice, okay, in a rocks glass or, mm -hmm. or a highball, whatever. So ice, throw your orange juice in there. Then next, you just pour in the vodka. Don't stir anything. On top of that, you pour in your Galliano and it kind of, there's a different consistency to it. It kind of hangs out on the top a little bit. Yeah. And then obviously your garnish. So when I made it that way, it, it actually changed up the taste of the drink entirely, didn't it? Yeah, quite a bit. When you made the shaken one, which I was that that's the normal way to make it, right? I think or the popular so. way? I think uh, so. When you shook it, it really just tasted like regular orange juice. And I know Jason Bernal in the office had one too, and we were just like It's orange Caleb, juice. Caleb, did you forget the ingredients? <laughs> I think you just gave us orange juice on on the rocks. Yeah, but it snuck up on you because you drank it like it was orange juice, right? Well, yeah, you that's I, that is dangerous. So I, I for some people that are just trying to get as inebriated as possible quickly, <laughs> I guess that works. That's not our goal with with drinking mixed drinks. So when you stacked it, which is real fancy, it's like laying bricks. Yeah, uh, you stacking those ingredients in there that tasted a lot different. It was a lot more interesting. Yeah. I, I was a lot more enjoyable of a cocktail to have it stacked. It's funny that it was the same exact ingredients just put in in a different way. Right. The nuance to making cocktails really impacts the, the whole drinking experience. So I liked it a lot better that way. Yeah. And and I think there's no no doubt that the star of the show in this drink, if you've listened to this show, you know that we're not big fans of vodka. The star in this <laughs> show is the Galliano, the Italian liqueur, which is a unique blend of 30 different herbs and spices. It definitely has a unique flavor, doesn't it? Yeah, I couldn't put my finger on it. I just know that it was complicated spices and tastes Yeah, there, also went with the orange. There's a lot going on. A little bit goes a long way, in my opinion, with this one. I noticed like a black licorice kind of taste right off the bat. 
it, it smoothed out though. There was some vanilla and stuff like that in there too. So I'm going to say this. I'm not putting it down. I, I think I kind of like this Galliano. It's interesting. But it does remind me, you know, if you've been fishing with a serious fisherman, like my grandpa, I used to spend summers fishing with him. And, you know, when you bait the hook, he'd say, well, you know, you don't want your human scent all over the worm. So he had this stuff in a bottle that you put on your hands before you bait your hook. And it had this really licorice kind of smell, but there was other stuff going in there to kind of uh, hide the scent. That's what it reminds me of at first when I pour it out, when I open up the bottle. And, and I wouldn't think that I would like that at all. I opened it and I went, man, this is, this is a bummer. I'm not going to like this. Mm-hmm. But it is really interesting. And I took one sip and thought, ooh, I don't know. The second sip, I thought, I, I, I kind of like this. Let's see what this tastes like in a cocktail. I'm kind of excited to try it in other cocktails, actually. So, Oh, yeah, we will. In our quest to become the most amateur of mixologists, <laughs> uh, we're going to use this uh, a lot more. Uh, our liquor cabinet is growing with the liqueurs and bitters and all of that collection. So I'm sure we'll throw it into some other drinks. I'm excited to see what you come up with, Barkeep. <laughs> Yeah, we had fun with this one. Well, Jason, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, because I think you did some digging on the history. Tell, tell us a little bit about the origins of the Harvey Wallbanger for just a minute. Yeah, really, the origins lie in intrigue and marketing and a little controversy. Almost all of these mm. drinks, they, like just people, bartenders throughout history, just steal recipes and claim them as their own. And uh, we see that more and more as we dig these mm-hmm. things up. But Harvey Wallbanger is probably the product of a great marketing campaign. Legend is that Duke Antone invented it in 1952. He named it after a surfer who came into his bar all the time named Tom Harvey. And he walked into the wall and boom, he named a drink. And it's that simple. <laughs> Wait, did he did he walk into the wall uh, after he the had The legend drink does <laughs> not describe how that came to be. The more likely story is that okay. this Duke Antone, he just kept making drinks. And... Uh, if this came up in the 70s, uh, like he just he was trying to invent a lot of drinks. And this probably kind of came out in the 70s, which is like the dark ages for making mixed drinks. Uh, a good quote from uh, Robert okay. Simonson uh, from 2012 is that the Harvey B- Wallbanger has one of the most memorable names in cocktail history and one of the worst reputations. A mix of vodka, orange juice and Galliano. It was one of the preeminent drinks of the 1970s, a decade recognized by drink historians as the Death Valley of cocktail eras. A time of sloppy, <laughs> foolish drinks made with sour mix and other risable shortcuts to flavor christened with silly monikers like Mudslide and Freddy Fudpucker. By the way, uh, Duke Antone invented that drink as well, <laughs> as well as the White Russian and the Kamikaze. And he oh, in- Jason, did, did I say? Did I say? Oh, good. I, I'm like, glad you, you said it. You right. owe Jason. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> did, did I say that wrong? Okay, good. Whew. No, good Man, job. I get so nervous whenever I come into words like that. But more likely <laughs> is Duke Antone was was making drinks. Uh, he came up with an Italian drink, and the name escapes me right now. That featured Galliano. It seems like the Galliano company reached out to him to make another drink. They invented the Harvey Wallbanger. They came out mm-hmm. with a cool cartoon, really, to advertise it. And we're looking at it here in front of us. And it just, all of the ads, there were many different <laughs> ones. He's like this, this burnout surfer guy. But he says, it says, Harvey Wallbanger, I can be made. And that was the ad campaign. So <laughs> that's what the late 60s and 70s were like. But it, it worked and it really took off. And people started ordering it because the name is really fun. Well, for someone walking into a bar that doesn't really know what they're, you know, doesn't know cocktails and they sit down and barkeep says, what can I make for you? Uh, how about that one? Harvey Wallbanger. There we go. 
<laughs> That's right. It catches on. And, and David Wondrich, who we've referenced a lot, he wrote that Antone's simple, <laughs> even dopey drink would go on to be the first drink created by a consultant to actually take the nation by storm. So this is marketing yeah. having a win. Like, you know, they just throw stuff at the wall till it, till it sticks. Well, here they got one. They got a winner and the Harvey Wallbanger caught on. Hooray, capitalism. (laughs) Hooray, capitalism. (laughs) Well, what are your impressions, Jason? I think it's, uh, I mean, it's okay. I wouldn't call it dopey. I don't mind it. Um, It's got vodka in it, so I'm not thrilled, but it's, it's not bad. I don't hate it. I'm okay with it being called dopey. I think that describes it okay. It's fun. It's a little silly. It's okay. I don't think I'd be reaching for it really ever, but I'm glad that I've tried it. I could see maybe reaching for this on vacation in the morning, late morning, maybe on the beach or something if I had nowhere to go. Yeah, maybe. Okay. (laughs) All right, so that was fun. Why don't we move on to the uh, financial topic and the tie here with the Harvey Wallbanger and the screwdriver and the annuities and all that good stuff. Yeah. We're going to talk about annuities today. And Jason, I I think that everybody who's listening to the show has probably heard the word annuity, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to guess that not everybody knows what an annuity is. So why don't we start with what is an annuity? Yeah, that's a good place to start because there's probably a lot of misconceptions and I usually just bash them because that's all the deeper most people will go. It's like, are they good Mm -hmm. or bad? And I'll just say bad. Uh, There are places for them. So like they started annuities are really just a contract that guarantees a fixed number of payments over mm-hmm. so long of a period of time. You usually take a lump sum of money or uh, you accumulate money into a pot somewhere and it grows with the intention of paying a fixed stream of income out to a recipient or many recipients. That's an annuity. Annuity is just a series of payments. That's a really simple way yeah. of, of breaking it down. You know, when you think about it, let's talk about practically speaking, a, a lot of more people... Mm-hmm. Than, than maybe what they think have annuities yeah. that, that didn't realize it. So first example I'll use is social security. It's an annuity. You put money in uh, every time you get paid and Uncle Sam takes that social security payment out of there, you are trading money now that's going to accumulate over time for a stream of income payments. Now, it, I'm not saying it's a good deal, <laughs> but it, that is an annuity in itself. And really, if you think about it, any pension, is built on that annuity chassis or framework. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. Think about uh, state teacher retirement pensions or public employee pensions, or if you have a pension at a factory that you worked at or some other company that still has a pension, you're taking some portion of your pay and or they're taking a portion of your pay and con- contributing it to this pension fund. The pension fund is managed as a big old blob of money mm-hmm. and it's grown with the intention of paying people out where they're running uh, calculations on how long people are probably going to live. Actuarials. Uh, on, yeah, yeah. They're, they're running actuarial calculations to figure out how much they're going to need to pay everybody out the agreed upon amounts. And then they're paying people out. That's that's an annuity. Pensions are annuities. Yeah. And, and a pension really is exchanging, a, like you said, exchanging a pot of money and saying, okay, here you go, somebody else. Take this pot of money that I've given you. And instead, I'm willing to take a paycheck. Right. Yeah. So give up, give up control of that asset. And instead you give me a paycheck that I can't outlive. Correct. Yeah. I usually describe them to people as upside down or inside out insurance contracts. Mm-hmm. They're insurance 
for you running out of money or running out of income. You take your lump sum of money and you give it to someone else and you transfer the risk of it not lasting you long enough uh, by them taking it. And then they annuitize the contract and they start giving you payments. And annuitize by definition really just means to turn it into a stream of payments. So Mm -hmm. uh, you hit something there that I think is interesting. You you mentioned transfer of risk, which by definition, that's what insurance is. Exactly. So yeah, it's an annuity is paycheck insurance. Um, That's a way to kind of summarize it, I think. Wouldn't you agree? I think that's that's good enough. Yeah. So (laughs) what's funny is when we talk to folks about retirement and income, because we say all the time, well, you don't run into folks that have a pension a whole lot anymore. And that used to be the norm. And we think of, well, a pension is a good thing. However, <laughs> you could turn that around and say, well, so-and-so has an annuity. And we go, ooh, that's a bad thing. But really, they're, yeah. they're kind of one and the same. So if you have a pension, realize that that is the same philosophy that they're using there. It's funded by a lump sum or a, a stream of payments in, in exchange for a stream of payments out that you can't outlive. Now, this is what I find interesting when we talk about annuities. We just talked about the basic definition of annuity in your experience and, you know, based on things that you've researched, how often do you think they're actually used in the way that they're designed? Yeah, let's let's clarify. Pensions, uh, Social Security, those are forms of annuities. They're not really what we're going to discuss right now. We're talking about individual annuities mm-hmm. that you create on your own. And so if if you were to do that with your retirement money and put it into an annuity to guarantee a stream of payments for you for the future, that'd be an individual annuity. But to answer your question, I don't know. I I have rarely run into people that have annuitized the contract, that have turned their lump sum of money into a stream of payments, and that's all it is. It's really rare, I think. There's, There's writers that do similar things in these contracts, but I don't know. I don't know in my career if I've had anybody annuitize an annuity. Well, I, I think that that's something, too, that when you talk about writers, we'll get into that um, in the next uh, section here. But that's not totally annuitizing a contract. Right. Uh, so if you have an annuity and you decide to annuitize, basically you are saying to that insurance company, let's let's say you have $100,000 in an annuity contract. That's like saying, okay, insurance company, I'm willing to forego all rights to this $100,000 in exchange for let's just call it $5,000 a year in annual payments. Mm -hmm. And if you live 30 years, let's say, and you get 30 years worth of those payments, you could say, oh, okay, well, I, I, you know, I got more than $100,000 out of that contract. I I won, you know, I beat the insurance company. Yeah, I lived long enough. Yeah, Yeah. nobody beats the insurance companies. We'll get into that. (laughs) I think that statistically, unless the numbers have changed over the last couple of years, Jason, my research in the past has shown that actual annuitization, not exercising writers, which we'll get into that stuff. Yeah, not just taking withdrawals out of it, right. annuitizing it, giving up your rights to it and exchanging it for a stream of payments. Yeah, formal annuitization. This could sound shocking because it is the reason that a lot of people buy annuities. About 2% of people who own them actually annuitize. Yes, and that should be clue number one why there's something fishy going on with these products, in my opinion. That's that's what they're made for. These are insurance contracts that were invented so that you did not outlive your money. And uh, 2% of people actually yeah. use that option, huh? So it's like anything else we talk about. It. I've said it in the past. Look, if it's an option that's available, if you're allowed to do it, it fits the bill for some people. 
Okay. So we just talked about insurance, uh, insurance mm-hmm. that you don't run out of money. You, you have a consistent paycheck. Can it be appropriate sometimes? If it wasn't appropriate for anybody, anytime, it wouldn't be allowed. So I think we need to talk about the need that they fulfill, who they're for. Yeah. You know, for someone who needs that income guarantee, it can be appropriate. But we can get into why we, we might contest that it's appropriate for a lot of folks, even if they need income. Giving up control of the asset in order to get a paycheck, if you know, maybe we believe we can mm-hmm. generate it a different way. I don't want to say that it's never appropriate ever. But we would say more often than not, they're, they're not necessary. And the problem is that they're, in my opinion, they're overused and probably the most abused product out there. They're absolutely abused and overused. I hate annuities and I think they're <laughs> awful because they should not be used for most situations. But here, I'll give you a few where they're actually a good option. Okay. One, Medicaid spend down. There are specially authorized by Medicaid annuities mm-hmm. uh, where you can transfer the value of your estate or assets into an annuity, convert it to a stream of payments, boom, you've satisfied Medicaid spend down uh, and turned it into a stream of income payments. That's a great option. Another option is if you are just working with your financial planner and it's going to be tight and you've got a decent annuity that's going to guarantee you the income you need for retirement and you think that you have a really long lifespan and you are scared to death of the stock market, That might be an okay uh, solution for you. That one I would try to talk you out of. Uh The third way uh, an annuity might actually work is if you need or really want some tax-deferred growth and you have maxed out or you're ineligible for almost everything else under the sun, maybe in that case... Uh, an annuity that's tied to growth and investments could work. I'm, so I'm not 100% against them, Caleb. Mo- it's just yeah, most 97% of against them. Uh, and I would throw another situation in there. If you were sold an annuity a long time ago, that's not a great deal. <laughs> that comes with a yeah. lot of expenses and you have that built-in tax deferral. You've got to come up with another way to unwind that without taking a big tax hit. Yeah, I always called it annuity rescue. There are some annuities yeah. out there that are a little bit more stripped down from a cost standpoint that we basically just say, look, you, no one should be paying three and a half percent for growth. Um, there are better ways of doing this. So I, w- I would think rescuing old bad annuity contracts is another reason. And full disclosure, folks, look, we've been in this business yeah. for a while and there's three advisors here at our firm. At some point in our career, we have all used annuities at one point or another. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that we love annuities or that it's the best thing. But there are some times when it's appropriate. And, and I'll go back and say, I've never done anything where I didn't think it was appropriate for a client. However, when we see clients' statements from other advisors and things like that, we just see so much of the same stuff. And it's used and abused. And it's, in our opinion, when we break it down and analyze it, I think we'll get into this in a minute. Yeah, It's obvious why the advisor has recommended the annuity. And it's what makes us so passionate about our stance on this. Yeah. Moving on to types of annuities, I think that this is a good segue in. There are a bazillion types of annuities out there, Jason. And I think the first one that we should talk about would be the immediate annuity, okay? Because that's probably the truest (laughs) to the definition of annuity. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know where to start with these. When we talk about these, the more more complicated I understand that they are, the, the more passionate I get about them. But yeah, we can start with immediate annuities out there. And and hopefully you guys are still tracking with us. So when we talk about types of annuities, this is a complicated investment product. We're going to go over some of the most popular ones and we're not going to hammer out 
all the details of any of them because it depends on the company issuing it, the time that they're issuing it. These things are not static. They are changing as the economy changes, as the rate environments change, as needs for people change, as life expectancy tables change. There are so many variables involved with it. But I think we can start with the immediate annuity, Caleb. That fits in with what when I was talking about Medicaid spend down there. That is an immediate annuity type. An immediate annuity is usually used by people that want to annuitize or they want to get a stream of income out of their money. Yeah, immediately, right? So maybe it's someone who's inherited a pile of money and they don't have pension or income Mm -hmm. sources that are stable and they might want to take a portion and say, great, give me a paycheck. I'm going to give you X amount of money. You give me a paycheck that I can't outlive. That would be the truest to the definition of an annuity because that's immediate annuitization. I've seen these used over the years as kind of a bridge to get to social security or a pension, things like that. This is something that doesn't come with obvious or explicit fees or anything, but know that when you give an insurance company your money, that there's definitely a a fee or a cost of doing business. Um, But like you said before, the insurance company is taking the risk by taking that sum of money, they know that they can invest it in a certain way that they can afford to pay you out that agreed upon amount for the rest of your life. Or And, and not to get things too complicated here, but sometimes they're just for a <laughs> certain period of time. Maybe it's 10 years and it's just to, bridge the, you know, just to bridge the gap until you get to Social Security age. Maybe you want to retire early, but Social Security and, and your pension are not an option at that point. But that would be the truest form. And in my yeah. opinion, you know, I've seen those used... Uh, Honestly, probably more appropriately than the other ones. Well, those are a true use of the annuity that what you're trying to do, like the example you gave of buying an immediate annuity to bridge the gap between when you retired and when Social Security starts or to bridge the gap between when you retire and when Medicare kicks in. Those kinds of things, a little bit of a shortfall in your income and expense your budget, your cash flows. That's what annuity helps with. And it does it, but the biggest most beneficial part of having an annuity is that guarantee. Mm -hmm. You've transferred the risk. You don't need to worry about the markets going up and down. You don't need to worry about changing your spending patterns, really. You're on a fixed income and you can count on it. That's the biggest benefit of it. Mm -hmm. And an immediate annuity, in this case, might not be the worst thing. (laughs) We're talking about immediate annuities. We're barely scratching the surface of the payout options on annuities, the annuitization options, the the investment options inside of them and all that. And we're not going to, we're not going to get to all of that. So this is when you're listening, if you are an annuity expert, trust me, Caleb and I can have two hour arguments about (laughs) annuities and And we have pros and cons and we have, (laughs) so we can get into the the weeds on that really big. So we want to keep it kind of, it's a, this is a primer. It's a, this is a primer on annuities for people because a lot of people ask why I hate them. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm getting into that now. They're complicated. They're hard to understand. That's the number one reason. Well, and it's about to get more fun because immediate annuities are one thing, but I think what makes us really bristle when we hear annuities is the abuse of the deferred annuity. And the deferred annuity, there's something to the name deferred, right? So you're not taking income right away. You're investing in the meantime. I'll say, quote unquote, investing in the meantime until you decide to take payments or maybe never take payments, actually until a later date. So the deferred annuity comes in a lot of different forms, Jason. The first one being a fixed annuity. And this is, you know, what you might hear about 
whenever you go to a bank and you don't like the CD options, you're probably going to hear what the latest, greatest fixed annuity rate options are. Yeah, of these deferred annuities, we've got fixed annuities, indexed annuities, variable annuities. And the fixed ones are just like, it's kind of like you would think they're fixed. Yeah. You're going to get a fixed rate of growth inside the contract before you exercise the annuity. Sim- works real similar to a CD, except for the fact that it's Very tax similar. deferred. And, and those are sold as CD replacements. Right. And instead of FDIC insuring that, well, the insurance company is insuring that. So uh, you could expect, I mean, you put it this way, it's a little bit higher risk than what a CD would be. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get a little bit better rate of return. The pros there that are pushed often is tax deferral, but you always pay the tax man at some point. So fixed annuities, and th- this is something where, like you said earlier on, someone who is absolutely opposed to the markets, you know, you might see them purchasing a fixed annuity. I've seen them used as quote unquote bond replacements, things like that too. You know, and these can vary, you know, when we talk about uh, a fixed annuity and a, a time frame that, that you might be locked in to a rate. I've seen anywhere from two years up to 15 years. Yeah, what you're giving up in a fixed annuity, there's not going to be a lot of fees, but you're going to give up time because if you take the money out, they're going to ding you with a big, big fee. Right. uh, If you take the money out early. If you go to the bank and the CD rate is a half a percent, but the fixed annuity rate is one and a half percent. Well, how can they do that? They know that they're going to have your money for X amount of time. And if you pull your money, they're going to penalize you for it because they can't recoup their costs there. Um, right. So that's the fixed annuity. That's pretty basic. It works a lot yeah. like a CD. It's tax deferred. Sometimes people use these in IRAs and things like that. Wow. No, they should not do that. <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes me so mad. Well, I'm so with upset the benefit right now. being tax deferral, and, and if it's in an IRA, I guess let's talk about that a little bit. You've I will. Time. Tax deferral is the main value of using an annuity, tax deferred growth. If you have an IRA, you already have that. Yes. You already have that. You should try to grow it more. And I get people being scared of, of pullbacks in the market and losing money. And the, the best part about a fixed annuity is that guarantee. But you're getting tax-deferred growth inside a thing that already gets tax-deferred growth that that is no value to you. And you're stuck in that investment until your surrender schedule runs you, you out. You said there the best thing is the guaranteed rate. That's true. But also, conversely, the worst thing is the guaranteed rate. Because if you're, and I always used to say this to folks when we talk about this, look, if we're going to commit to five years or seven years, time is your friend in the market over a five to seven year period. So again, it, it's that is, you, you mentioned annuities, the annuitization feature being paycheck insurance or income insurance. In this regard, we're looking at this as investment insurance, investment risk insurance. But what you give up on the upside, let's think about this. These companies that are offering these programs are making money. The insurance companies always make money. If you invest your money uh, over the same five, seven year, 10 year period, we've seen, like I said, we've seen crazy things like 15 years, you're going to be better off in the market unless you absolutely can't tolerate it. But like you said, that's when we're going to have a real conversation why you need to tolerate the risk if you have a long time horizon. Yeah, annuities are sold as a reason to not have to educate clients about how to invest. It's a lot easier than talking about the risks and what to expect. So let's move into index annuities. It's a slightly slightly, uh, better version of a fixed annuity, I guess. You have higher chances of participating in market gains usually. Uh, They're ridiculously complicated on most of the rules, and you'll never understand it (laughs) unless you read the entire prospectus of when you're going to make money and when you're not. But the basic premise of an index annuity is there's a floor. If the market goes backwards, you get 
Zero. You don't have to, you don't have to participate in the drops of the market, which is what everybody loves about them. Yeah, we love that's so easy to sell. And you you do participate in the growth, but only up until a point they have a cap. So let's say a 0% floor. You can't go below 0%. So if you're in this annuity and you promise me that you'll leave it here for seven years the, and the market returns zero over that time or negative, you will get zero uh, credit to your account. If the market is positive, you will get all of those gains up to, let's say, 5%. Yeah. And so you have a 5% cap. And all you're giving up there usually because uh, there are writers involved with index annuities. Not all. All you're giving up but... is is time. Yeah. So you you hold it in there for a, a period of time. It sounds like a really good deal. Um, that's how those are sold. Well, let, and... let's put it this way. Here's an example. You start an index annuity and you say the market's really high right now and I think it's going to pull back. Let's say you're right. Usually that's not what happens. But let's say you're right and the market goes down 30% next year. Wow, I'm glad that my contract returns zero. But let's talk about a year like last year where the market did 30% and you get full participation up to, what was that, 5%? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 5% with a guarantee sounds nice, but look at all you've given up on the upside. And, and the cost there, while there might not be explicit costs or even riders attached to it, it's opportunity cost of doing better by participating in the market. Yeah, but you feel better because you're not going to go below zero. <laughs> so that's that's the pull of an index annuity. Now we're going to go into the most complicated of all annuities, yeah. the variable annuity. And it's just like what you think uh, when you say variable, you, you, it sounds like it can change. And so your returns usually in a variable annuity, the structure is the same. We got tax deferral just like in these other deferred annuities, fixed and indexed. So you, you put money in, you can put it all in a lump sum or you can put it in gradually over time. It should grow. Uh, a variable annuity has underlying investments called subaccounts. They're usually made to mimic mutual funds mm-hmm. or exchange traded funds or some sort of index, something <laughs> like that. And the idea is you participate in the growth of those subaccounts uh, as they grow. And the guarantee that you get usually in a variable annuity is some sort of writer that uh, says, for income purposes, if you decide to activate this contract to take income out, we will guarantee you X percent of 5% guaranteed growth a year. Yeah. Did that make no sense to you out there listening? <laughs> this is where, I'm not surprised. This is where a whiteboard <laughs> would be really helpful because whenever I would meet with folks that had variable annuities and I'd say, do you know what you have? Let's talk about what you'd have. And I'd get up on the whiteboard and they go, I've, I've never, this has never been explained to me. Well, no surprise there, right? They're extremely complicated. You started to bristle when we talked about uh, fixed annuities a little bit more uh, when we talked about index annuities. Variable is where I really start to lose my mind. No, my head's turning red. I, <laughs> these are these are the most abused on sales Definitely. of annuities. And I know we've been we both come up in bank channels where these are pushed really hard. And we're going to talk about that. The, hint, hint, everyone. It's because they make a lot of revenue for the people selling them. Um, but we learned a lot about these so that we could sell them really well. And there are really good sounding writers in there. And yeah. I don't want to be totally against it. Like there's some there's some good safety nets involved. And some of these. Uh, have performed really, really well. Yeah, because of the way that they were structured. So, and we have used full disclosure yeah. again. We have used certain types of variable annuities that have worked out really well. But it's it's so, in my opinion, the client that this makes sense for is it's narrow. And unfortunately, what we see oftentimes is everybody's got one. 
You can go you go to the average financial advisor firm and the the stat the like the line is uh well you got this much money in your 401k or whatever your lump sum of money to invest in when you retire or to invest when you retire is and half of it will go into a variable mm-hmm. annuity and half of it will go into maybe some mutual fund portfolio and we see it every time and everyone gets the same variable annuity that can't make sense for everyone you but know, it looks like the advisor thinks so. I know sometimes we hear what we want to hear when we're being explained how these products work. However, I think that advisors can do a really good job of honing in on what they want you to hear as well. Yeah, and definitely. I, here, here's a case study. I met with some folks a couple of years ago when I was at the bank. A, a banker had introduced me to these these folks who were happy a few years into retirement. Everything was going well. She brought up investments and they said, yeah, well, you know what? It's been a while. We, we would be happy with Caleb looking at our, our portfolio. So I, I have in front of me five variable annuity statements. And the first thing I say is, hi, folks, I'm Caleb. Nice to meet you. I hear you're retired. How are things going? Things are great. We're spending time with our grandkids. We're traveling. Awesome. How's income? Income's great. I have pension. I have social security. In fact, we're saving money every month. And I go, okay, cool. So income's not a problem. No, not a problem at all. Well, I look at the five statements in front of me and what do I see? Five variable annuities with income riders, okay? So basically, I I pushed the statements back over to them and I said, explain to me what you have and why you have it. Well, they can't, okay? Because they are insanely complex. But what it boiled down to was, look, this was sold to me at a time when the markets were going crazy, 08, 09. I didn't like the fluctuation. And what I was told was this, if the market does well, you'll participate with the market. If the market doesn't go well, you're going to at least get 5%. Well, Jason, that sounds pretty freaking fantastic, doesn't it? That's magical. If the market does bad, I only get 5%. And if it does good, I get the good part. Right. How can you lose? And then you say, well, what about the fees? Well, it doesn't matter if I get 5%. Well, That's the way right. that this magic works is it isn't magic at all. That 5% is a phantom account value that your your account grows by. And the only way to get those guarantees is to annuitize or to take the income rider and basically give up the control. So what I had in front of me was a client with a $3 million portfolio that was all wrapped up in income guarantees. And the last thing on their mind was income. And oh, by the way, I had to be the guy at the end of the day to say, you're also paying about 4% a year for this, just so you know. Variable annuities do a really good job of not letting you know how much money you actually have if you need it right now. You, yeah. They got all these other numbers on there and just listening to you explain things and me explain things and trying to put myself in just the average listener's chair, like none of this makes any sense. It all sounds crazy. So let's go Let's go right into kind of boiling it down of why, why these are sold and what the bullet points are for why you don't need one. I just want to put a little bit of doubt in our listeners' minds about annuities so that they look at them critically. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the number one rule for investing is if you don't understand it, don't do it. And yeah. if, if everybody followed that, the amount of annuities sold would be way less because they're complicated. And we sold them for a long time and had to be educated on them. And we're sitting with all these different insurance companies so that they could teach us all about their great annuities. Mm-hmm. And you can only fit information for a couple of them in your mind at right, one time right. because the prospectuses are huge. The how they work is so confusing. So let's let's go into uh, how and why they're sold, Caleb, and why people don't need one. And kind of well, I, I think out. the big one is guarantees. Something to make you feel good because I think that it's really easy to be even when you know obviously when markets are down, it's easy to get worried and upset, absolutely and frustrated, and want to guarantee. But 
you know, there's a lot of folks out there who get skittish when things are good. Right now we're sitting real close to all-time market highs. And I know there are folks out there who are nervous about that right now. Yeah. So there is an insurance salesman, a, a Harvey Wallbanger out there ready to sell you an annuity. There's a Harvey Wallbanger banging on your doors. He's going to scare you to sell this annuity. He's going to say, I've got guarantees and you're scared. The market goes crazy. Do you remember 2008 and 9? Do you remember 2000, 2001? It's awful. It's so yeah. bad. And it's usually sold with misinformation about how markets and investing actually work, or at least just preying on your fear. And I get it. It's never a good feeling to see your money drop. Uh, but annuities are not usually a good way to protect against that. Usually these guarantees cost a ton of money yeah. or time that you're not really seeing. Yeah, guarantees are probably the number one way these are sold. They make you feel good. Jason, I think to clarify, guarantees are probably the number one reason that annuities are bought. But okay, yes, yes. In your opinion, what is probably the number one reason that annuities are sold? Yeah, Let's the go number to the other one, side of the table here. I like, yeah, I like the way that you've put that. The, the number one reason they're bought is for guarantees to feel safe. The number one reason they're sold is because they can make you a lot of money as a financial advisor. Yeah. You are you are basically getting upfront or recurring commissions. It's a financial product. When you sell this, guys that sell annuities uh, are selling uh, this product and receiving a commission. Usually, and they have some new ones out there that are fee based yeah. um, that you can get paid, you know, 1% a year forever for having it. But and not to split hairs, but if you are working with some independent advisor out, outside of, let's say, outside of a bank broker dealer or something like that, the, a lot of the bank broker dealers and a lot of the other broker dealer channels are going to limit commissions for advisors because mm-hmm. they, they may say they don't want somebody to sell too much of one thing or another. But in the independent channel, it can kind of be the wild, wild west. And some of these uh, commission checks that we, <laughs> we've we seen, they're they're wild. They are absolutely wild. It's insane how much some yeah. advisors make off of selling annuities. It's, it's not out of line for somebody to get 7 to 10 to more than that percent of the premium, which is the amount of money you put in. So if you have a $500,000 401k and, you, and this guy's like, hey, you know what? You should really do this variable annuity. It's going to do all this great stuff for you. I'd really like it if you'd buy this variable annuity because I'll make $50,000 right now. That's huge. That's that's the main reason they are sold. It's at no bones about it. There are good people out there that recommend some annuities sometimes. Uh, I know we have, to, we have to say that we have done it. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, there's a huge conflict of interest between the insurance companies that are going to pay you the big well, amounts. And you've got to be able to disclose that conflict of interest and explain it. Because like you said, we have all sold annuities before. I still will... I will not back down. I've never done it when I didn't think it was appropriate. Okay. I didn't sell the most annuities (laughs) on my team when I was at the bank. That's for sure. So there are reasons for them. It's just, we see that everybody's usually got one or two or three or four of them that really don't need them. It can make sense in some cases, but we, we find more often than not, it's a square peg pounded into a round hole. The reason they're so complicated. And I think a lot of advisors use that as a way to just basically say, look, you need me to decipher yeah. this scary, confusing world of finance. Just trust me and and move on. And here's the scary part. A lot of advisors out there selling annuities every day don't understand what they're selling. My, my main complaint about these is not that they're not suitable, not that they won't accomplish your goals. The problem with that I have with most annuities, because they might, they might. Maybe you you only need X dollars in retirement and the annuity is probably going to get you there with its guarantees. Uh, or the variable annuities got, yes, yeah, sure, it might cost you three and a half percent a year, 
Uh, but it's got the riders in it that make you feel safe if you become terminally ill or you got return of premium. I don't know. There, there are some things in there. So I'm not saying that they're sold and not being suitable because plenty of people have been sued, uh, advisors uh, and insurance salesmen for selling annuities that aren't suitable to people. So they have to make sure they're suitable, which means they, they fit their need. My problem is with suitability being the bar to clear. It doesn't mean they're the best thing for you. It just means that they're okay. No. They're not bad for people, yeah. but they're not the best thing. And, and you could argue that you're putting somebody in a better position than letting them sit all in right. cash too. That's true, but is it Or optimal? it's the best thing you could do because this person was just going to leave all their money in CDs after they got burnt in the last market crash and I got them to, to do a fixed annuity uh, and they're, they're not going to go backwards. They just got to leave their money in here for 10 years and they're going to get some gains. It's really a lazy way out. The financial advisor should be teaching should be should be working with people to help them understand to educate them on on how to best steward their money and my my contention is that annuity rarely rarely is the best way to steward your money well jason the last thing i'll say is we don't want to be too hard on the financial advisors do we i mean sometimes it's pretty hard to survive when you've got a sales culture that's beating into you that you need to sell and make commissions and revenue every yeah, day, Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> it's a big reason of why this firm that we work at exists is to escape that kind yeah. of culture. But yeah, if you, <laughs> I know if you're a financial advisor and you're listening to this, reach out, man. I'll talk to you about the pains of it. I know there's a lot. There's a, We'd be there's a big to. sales culture pushing high revenue products, putting profits over people. It's what, it's what corporations yep. get tempted to do. A lot of people are pushed into this. And a lot of salesmen don't even know any better. They don't even know because right. they're just a sales salesperson. They've had sales training. They know how to get you to buy this to make them some revenue. This is the best thing they That's know right. of. So, yeah. so I, I think that bottom line, you might have an annuity. Is it the end of the world? It might not mm-hmm. be, but I think that you better understand why you have yeah. it. That, that's really, in my opinion, like anything else when it comes to investments, know what you own and why yes. you own it. So Jason, why don't we distill it down a little bit? We're running short on time here. If we had to give our listeners some bullet points here, uh, what would they be? And uh, maybe some calls to action. One, annuities are a risk transfer. They make your money a stream of guaranteed payments. Guarantees are the good parts of annuities. Two, there are so many types of annuities. They are really, really, really complicated. Be very, very skeptical if you are being offered one. Figure it out and learn it before you commit to buying it. And three, you can probably accomplish your goals without one. You probably don't need one. That's my that's my main contention with almost every annuity. You probably don't need one. Calls to action. Continue to learn about investing. That is so important here at, at our firm. We believe that um, you know we, we do financial planning with the heart of a teacher. I've always said, if my clients understand what they own and why they own it, we'll get through the tough times. I'm not saying we're not going to have tough times. I promise that we'll have tough times. Oh, thanks. But if you understand what you have and the purpose for that, it's a lot better. It's a lot easier to, to get through those uh, those bumpy times. So the, the more that you know, the less that you'll you'll need an annuity because you understand how they work and, and maybe how you can accomplish those same things outside of that structure. The other thing I'll say is if you have one, review it. Review it today. Mm -hmm. And I would say if you have reviewed it recently, at minimum, review it every year. I've run into some pretty unique situations where, and we didn't even get into market value adjustment and all that kind of stuff, but you might be locked in for a little while, but because of the current rate environment, now might be a good time to make a a transition, make a switch to a different type of a portfolio that better suits your your goals. So review (laughs) it. Make sure you're doing it annually. Review with a competent financial advisor. 
there is a possibility that what you have makes sense. And maybe the person that put you in it was justified in doing that. And that's okay. But why wouldn't you go back and, and reevaluate like anything else you would do when it comes to your finances? Right, Jason? Right. Except that they probably, no, I've been mean enough. <laughs> I've been mean enough. <laughs> I get fired up. I, the bottom line is I hate annuities. Yeah, you're right. Maybe they do fit your situation, but you should review it. Uh, <laughs> I hate annuities, man. I just, I've, I've been burnt right. so much. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> All right, Jason, I'd say it's time for... It's questions straight up. (laughs) Okay, so this one comes from a new client, Sarah, who asks, should I have cancer insurance that's offered by my employer? Oh, man. Well, Jason, (laughs) what do you think? I don't know. Cancer insurance salesmen are the Harvey Wallbangers of of health insurance. (laughs) Uh, So there's some nuance with cancer insurance, I think. First of all, cancer is a hot button issue. It's awful. It's affected all of us probably in some way, shape, or form. It's heartbreaking. It's horrible. It's painful. It gets us really emotional. So insurance companies have an option to help alleviate some of that stress and fear of cancer. And they've come out with cancer insurance, which is basically health insurance for a specific condition. My personal view on this and my professional view is that you should never, ever, ever buy cancer insurance. And the reason for that is you have health insurance and you have life insurance. Mm -hmm. Those I really recommend and long-term disability. Those will cover you. Cancer insurance, I think, in my opinion, is a um, it's just taking advantage of people's fears. Uh, it's like during the, yeah. the late 80s and 90s coming out with AIDS insurance just because people are affected by it and scared. All right. So this is a, a client of mine. We discussed this when we were looking at their overall financial picture before onboarding them and have been paying into it for a long time. This specific client is a teacher. And I know my wife is a teacher. I know how uh, those meetings go every year where the insurance guy comes in and tries to tell you, you need this, 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 and this. And sometimes you just, okay, fine, moving on. <laughs> you know, in this case, what you need to look at is a lot of times there's a return of premium option on on some of these programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check into that. You, maybe you've been paying into one for years and you decide now it's time to stop it. You might be able to get a good chunk of your funds back that you've, you've dumped into this thing. So yeah. Yeah, like Jason said, you have health insurance and life insurance for a reason. Absolutely, those are mandatory. That's necessary. But if if you've got that cancer insurance, I I almost hate to say it because I feel like I'll tell you to get rid of it and then you'll go get diagnosed with cancer. But again, isn't that what health insurance is for? If you've been sold one of these policies, look into it, see if you can get out. Maybe you can get some of your money back, but I don't think it's uh, something that you want to keep throwing money at. I, it's funny that this is a you're, this is a teacher because teachers are sold like the worst financial products they of are. all time. They have, first of all, especially in Ohio, the state that we're in, the state teacher's retirement system is actually pretty well managed. So as far as a pension goes, yeah. it's been doing real good. Um, but <laughs> then you have all these gross sales guys coming into the schools saying, I got your 403B all set up. Here we go. And it's a fixed annuity or an index annuity. And mm-hmm. they're getting you to buy into this. We already talked about annuities. And you've got 20 years till yeah, retirement. You're, yeah. Maybe you're a new teacher yeah. and you're you're 25 years old and they're like, here's an annuity. Come on, man. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and then you get, you get hassled with all this crazy short-term disability and cancer insurance and you're just trying to start a career and life teach. insurance for your children. Yeah, it's just, it's disgusting. That's, Teachers yeah. are preyed upon. They are one of the most underserved categories in financial advice, probably because they've been the most abused. So here we like teachers. Some of us are married to teachers. <laughs> 
we, we have a soft spot. So uh, look us up if you have any questions. We realize, uh, and, and we, we believe that we do financial planning with the heart of a teacher. So if you've had some of these policies sold to you, um, you know, give us a call. Talk to your financial advisor. Get somebody, get a financial planner involved, not a salesman, not a Harvey Wallbanger. <laughs> Did anything come into the speakeasy this week? Yeah, we'll go quick. We've had some new subscription to our mailing list in response to this competition to win a bottle of Blanton's bourbon. So make sure that you email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com with proof that you have subscribed uh, to this podcast for an entry into that contest. Also, What's in Your Cup, which is our buddy podcast out there, <laughs> uh, commented in the speakeasy. Great episode on our uh, Manhattan Project introductory episode. He said, great episode. If you're not already investing in your 401k and listening to the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, then you need to start both today. Thanks a lot. Kind words and check out what's in your cup. The podcast, that is. I mean, I just yeah. checked out what's in my cup. It was a Harvey Wallbanger. Mine's just a <laughs> leftover leftover fruit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, folks, for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. <laughs>